Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, we will hear from the queen of romance, Jasmine Guillory herself. In the years before the wedding date came out, I would go into bookstores and there was never romance on our front table. And now every bookstore that I go into has romance, like right there in the front tables. But first, let's discuss the other queen and some other topics with two delightful humans. With us this week, we have the senior producer of WBEZ's daily talk show, Reset, Meha Ahmad. Meha, hello. Hey, Greta. Also here is Helen Rosner. She's a staff writer who writes about food, among other things, at The New Yorker. Helen, hello. Hey, Greta. Happy to be here. Okay, so let's start with the new boy queen. We have a new British monarch. (laughs) It is Charles III. He became king last week after his mother, Elizabeth II, died. She lived for a very long time. So has Charles. He's already 73. It's been hard to ignore a couple of like viral videos over the past week, especially this pen incident mm-hmm. where like he also didn't know what day it was. And then he got really mad at a fountain pen. Um, you know, a lot of people are like, dude, give this guy a minute. Like his mother just died. This has to be a really stressful situation. But I don't know. It's also I, he doesn't seem hella gracious so far. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Helen? Are you how closely are you following this stuff? How old did you say he's seventy three? Like, yeah, that's a long time to. He's a grown be man. an intern for a job you're not <laughs> sure you're gonna get. <laughs> you know, I'm sure he's spent decades. If we're rounding up, I guess close to a century, like fantasizing about. Well, you know, when I'm king, mm. like in a literal way, here's what I'm gonna do. And then, I don't know. It's probably pretty overwhelming to suddenly be like, well, crud. I actually am. Yeah, I hear you. It's probably super overwhelming. But also, I mean, to your point, like, you could also argue he's been preparing for this his entire life, right? Or at least should have been. He has had time to learn how to use a pen. (laughs) And not preparing alone, right? Like, there's a Mm. whole, I want to say team, but it's like teams, plural, of people in in and outside the palace that are have been for decades for his entire life just helping him prepare for this moment especially in recent years i mean we all knew the clock was ticking for the queen i mean she was in her 90s yeah. so like you know i don't think charles was super shocked like oh i didn't expect this <laughs> to happen <laughs> yeah so soon kind of thing you know yeah there's a lot going on this week and i can understand he feels a little overwhelmed and i mean like i can give grace for that Mm. I don't that's not my big hang up with the monarchy. Like (laughs) I have much bigger issues with the monarchy than like dealing with a pen. I got real beef. (laughs) So, yeah. Tell us about the beef. Spill the tea, Maha. You know, like he just inherited from the Queen's estate, private estate. Um, I saw one 
estimate of like $500 million. It's yeah. another of $750 million. Like this is like insane money, right? Mm-hmm. And he didn't have to pay any kind of inheritance tax. And that was because of a law that they passed in 1993 that a sovereign can pass property and wealth from one sovereign to another without paying an inheritance tax. And it's like such a specific rule. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's such a gilded loophole. Yeah. What is the inheritance tax in Britain? It's something like 40%. I mean, it's a considerable amount of money. And it's just like, oh, no, it's really important to us from a national perspective that you guys continue to be as rich as humanly possible. Yeah, like we can't just be very rich. We have to be like hella rich. (laughs) And so there's some quotes going around from this guy, James Connolly, who was an Irish socialist like over a century ago. He was very anti-monarchist. He said, what is the monarchy? What has been its gift to humanity? Mm. And I've been thinking about that for like a week. (laughs) So like what has been its gift to humanity? Just like, oh, this like little old lady in a lemon yellow dress. And we're like, oh, she's so cute. (laughs) She's so cute with her dogs. Like, I love a corgi as much as the next person. Greta, I know you do, too. Thank you. I appreciate that as a corgi owner. (laughs) (laughs) But I just think that, you know, they've gotten away with this little old lady sort of sanitizing the, you know, really grossness of the monarchy and the aristocracy. And a brutal history. Yeah. And I think that with a King Charles, they don't have that like little old lady Mm. image anymore. Yeah. And I do wonder if like in the next few years, his sort of like attitude and maybe some gaffes and hot mic will sort of like open some people's eyes to, you know, what her like sundresses and purses and dogs have kind of sanitized and hid for a long time. And there was something I think, you know, inherently campy about the queen as an aesthetic and cultural figure with Mm -hmm, the silk scarves mm -hmm. and the corgis and the like reckless driving in the Land Rovers and the sort of particular squishiness of her face. I mean, it really, if if I went into somebody's home and they had, you know, an embroidered pillow of Queen Elizabeth II, I would be like, oh, like, that's clever and campy. And like, maybe like, we should talk a little bit about how serious you are about this, but there's a universe mm-hmm. in which it's kitschy and fun. And Charles is just the least aesthetically, culturally, aesthetically <laughs> interesting dude. He's just, yeah, he's this weird, angry guy who's previous wife was universally beloved and who he treated like garbage. I love that you called the queen's face squishy. (laughs) I've never thought to describe it that way. And now I'll never be able to look at a picture of her again without thinking of that. I think it was one of her most relatable features. Oh, my God. That's delightful. It's funny because when you Google King Charles right now, you know how they'll do like people also ask. And two of the like top five questions about King Charles are why was King Charles upset and what happened with King Charles and the pen? <laughs> that sucks, dude. <laughs> so another big development, at least in my life this week, is the new iPhone update. Weirdly enough, it's I think it's 16. Uh, it turns out you can edit and delete texts if you send them to other iPhone users, which is wild. It seems to me like this is going to be the source of a lot of like passive aggressive relationship strife. <laughs> um, I have, have, I, has either of you downloaded it? so far. Maha, do you have it? Well, I I read the sort of like fine print on this is they will see every version of the text message you have edited. Yeah, what it'll do, it says edited and then you can click on the edited button and then it's sort of like, you know, how you can do threads these days if you reply to a specific text. It kind of does the same thing where it like pulls up all three of them or whatever. But I think you only get a certain number of edits and you only have 15 minutes to edit it. So it's sort of like, I don't 
I don't know what the actual purpose of this is going to be. Well, I can edit a lot in 15 minutes. I'm like, we all text pretty fast, right? So, like, I'm just like, oh, no. Like, we come on. Let's all be real. Like, when we're sending a text, we work pretty hard. We kind of redrafting to mm. sound pretty, like, casual and cool and breezy yeah. or whatever. And, like, the idea that now they will see <laughs> how often we tried to sound casual and breezy, that's horrifying. <laughs> I kind of find the practice of having an un- inadvertent typo and then having to correct it really sweet and fun. <laughs> I think it's given rise to some of my best inside jokes with friends. Aww. You know, the, the autocorrect error, I think, is just like the most elegant form of found art in our current yes, technological that's a really era. Good point. Well, in like ducking, like how often, yeah. you know, you are laugh we every time word? you see ducking. <laughs> ducking is we perfect. all laugh. Like ducking is 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 poetry in a single word, but there is just something <laughs> lovely and human and you know enjoyably flawed to me yes. about the idea of recording these imperfections and then having to correct. You know, everybody corrects them slightly differently, and some people don't care. And like, it's just, flaws are what make us human, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that giving us more and more. And I say this as a crazy grammar stickler who goes insane if I spell something wrong. Like. It's still fun. I like it when we have to mess up in public. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. It's kind of a beautiful sentiment, actually. Um, So we are in September, which means we are rapidly approaching decorative gourd season, motherfuckers, as that one super viral (laughs) mixing article would say. Uh, Of course, Starbucks is again serving their pumpkin spice latte. And the phrase pumpkin spice is actually now in the dictionary. Merriam-Webster added it along with a batch of other words. Uh, Helen, do you think this is the visibility that pumpkin spice needs? <laughs> I was a little bit shocked that it wasn't there already. I know, honestly. right? I think that, you know, conceptually, pumpkin spice has been around for a very, very long time. And definitely the combination of spices that we have labeled pumpkin spice has been around for centuries, if not millennia, as, you know, the sort of. Actually, I was reading a really interesting article recently about how these sort of wintry, like warming spices, like cinnamon and clove and cardamom and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The reason we think of them as wintry and warming is not because they grow in a particular season, but it's actually rooted in in Ayurvedic um, culinary mm-hmm. practices that then kind Ooh. of made its way to Europe through alchemy and all sorts of interesting kind of medieval Ooh. food stuff. And you know. Yeah, it's about frickin' time, I think, that this was codified in the dictionary as a, as a discrete collection of spices. <laughs> I think so, too. I love it. It's funny because, you know, I'm always a little conflicted at the risk of seeming, seeming too basic. We're like, I do love the combination of spices, but I'm not going to buy, like, the pumpkin spice pita chips at Trader Joe's or whatever, you know? I used to think there was a pumpkin spice lobby, but now I think there's, like, a pumpkin cabal. And <laughs> I think they've gone a little too far with, like, some of, like, pumpkin spice Oreos and... Whatever. I mean, pumpkin spice Oreos sound better, at least, than pumpkin spice hummus. Good Lord. Like, that is too far, don't you think? Yeah, I do. It's a bastardization of my culture. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that, that it's it's important, I think, maybe maybe it's only important to me, but I think there's a, <laughs> there's something to the idea of saying, does this product exist so that somebody will post incredulously about it on TikTok or Instagram? Or does this product exist because it's actually delicious? Mm-hmm. And um, I agree. I think that in general, as a category, I reject the idea of a dessert hummus. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you, Helen. <laughs> some people, thank I need you. to find them. Like some people have been trying to make dessert hummus happen for years. And I feel like pumpkin space yeah. is certainly part of that. It's the cabal. I need them to <laughs> stop. I think we all do. We all need them to stop. But I don't 
don't know, like pumpkin spice honey nut Cheerios. That actually sounds pretty great. Yeah, totally. Those sound that sounds delicious. I do not a hundred percent love the phrase pumpkin spice because of the whole mm. confusion about whether or not it actually contains pumpkin, which I get really angry at, like irrationally and invested in in the oh idea God. that this is a description of spices that are used to spice pumpkin. Wait, right. <gasps> there isn't pumpkin in it. No, Maha. <laughs> Like, you want coffee with squash in it? Really? Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Technically, it should be called pumpkin pie spice because it's the spices you put in a pumpkin pie. Exactly. Yeah, I feel very strongly about that as well. So a couple of years ago, people started getting really mad at Starbucks because some, like, truthers came out with the <laughs> fact that the Starbucks pumpkin spice latte contained no actual pumpkin and there was a large swath of angry people on the internet who thought that they were subjected to, you know, food fraud because Starbucks promised them a latte with pumpkin. So now the Starbucks um, pumpkin spice syrup contains, I think, a trace amount of actual pumpkin just to appease these folks who demand raw squash in their coffee. That's hilarious. Ugh, ugh. Well, Maha, Helen, thank you both so much for coming on. This was very fun. Thanks for having us. So much fun. In just a minute, we hear from romance author Jasmine Guillory about her new book, Drunk on Love. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Our next guest is the delightful Jasmine Guillory. She is a romance author, and her eighth book, Drunk on Love, is out this coming Tuesday. It's about Margot, who's running her family's vineyard in Napa Valley, and Luke, who grew up there and just moved back after quitting a toxic job in tech. They meet at a bar, have an amazing night together, and then they both found out the next day that he is her new employee at the vineyard. It is steamy and fun. Jasmine, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have you. I feel like in a lot of ways, you were sort of my entry into romance. Oh, I love hearing that. You were like my my gateway drug. So this is really exciting to talk to you. I love being a gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> So one thing I really loved about this book in particular, but isn't necessarily unique to, you know, I think your other books do this really well, too, is that work plays a really big part in our female protagonist's life. And you really don't underplay it. Like, I think often, you know, you'll read a book that sort of like mentions that work is a thing, but we don't actually spend any time there or see the character, you know, like going through challenges there. But I think especially with this one, that is such a major part of what you're doing. Yeah. And I didn't really go into this book planning to do this, but I was just thinking Mm. about this this morning. Work plays a big role in both of their lives, but in a very different way. That's very true. Yeah. I think they're both kind of both Margot and Luke are kind of figuring out their place in the world and 
how they want work to play a role in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Because for Luke, he's sort of taking this job as like a break from the the breakneck pace of his job before. Yeah, exactly. And And like he sort of goes into it expecting it to be easy because it is so different from what mm-hmm. he did and then learns a lot um, and also kind of learns a lot about himself in the process. Mm-hmm. So why a winery? I imagine you got to go to Napa for research. I imagine that wasn't the entire reason for doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was very difficult research, I have to say. You know, <laughs> struggle, but we do what we have to do. Um, yep. Actually, <laughs> the the setting came to me first um, mm. when I, I was sort of thinking about what kind of book I wanted to write next. And most of my previous books had all been written, um, set taking place either in the Bay Area or the LA area, which are, um, you know, I'm from California. And so mm-hmm. I think naturally I kind of set books there. Um, yeah. But I wanted to do something a little different and I was kind of thinking about what I could do. And then I thought, oh, Napa Valley, that would be fun. Um, mm. And that is a place that I've spent a bunch of time. I live not too far away. So once I knew that I was going to set it in Napa Valley, it felt like obviously this has to be um, set in and around a winery. And so a lot of um, a lot of the choices I made in the story came from that setting. That's so cool. Well, and I think it's partly really interesting, too, because it's a black owned winery, which is something that I don't know, I haven't heard a whole lot about existing. Yeah. I'm sure they do, though. They, yeah, there there are a few of them up in Napa. I have um, been to them and have mm. had a great time at them. Brown Vineyards <laughs> is uh, one of my favorites. And that was like, kind of one of the things that inspired um, a little bit about this. And so there is a lot of, you know, it's a small winery. They are not quite struggling, but not quite there yet. And so Mm. a lot of that inspires some of what Margot deals with in the book. So when we are introduced to Luke, We've said he recently left. It's a cushy tech job, but it's also, you know, like the, he faced a lot as like a black man in tech where, you know, people sucked. Um, he's moved home. He's working at the winery and he feels a lot of shame and judgment about the fact that he he quit this job, which I thought was kind of interesting, partly because it not the shame and judgment part, but just the like, is this job really worth my time? Life is short. You know, is this really wanna, what I want to be doing with my life? resonated to me a lot just in terms of stories we've been hearing, especially since the pandemic about people leaving their jobs because of shitty working conditions. Was that, do you think that kind of played into your thinking with that a little bit? I think, I mean, I think it must have, I think, um, you know, I mean, I, there was definitely a lot of personal experience that played into that. Mm, Um, But also I, you know, I knew a lot of people who were sort of in the midst of having that struggle. And so the, it was, it did feel like, yeah, this is the time that people are going through this. Luke would be going through it too. And he is also at just about that right age. He's in his late twenties, which I feel yeah. is at a, at a time in, in our lives where a lot of people, like they've been kind of working to one thing for so long and then they get it and they're like, wait, did I, did is that I it? This? <laughs> yeah. Um, totally. So he, you know, he is sort of going through that crisis um and then and I, because I think it that is really hard because if you think no then you're, you're questioning yourself the whole time like well but mm-hmm. I could I must have wanted it right it, it must be good I, I I must there must be something wrong with me that I don't want it and so I think a lot of people kind of struggle with that feeling of what do I do now 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you have written eight books, right? Yes. And it's been four years, which is crazy. I mean, that's an intense pace. It's not outrageous for romance writers, but like you're cranking them out. I mean, I will say like the first two books I wrote, you know, obviously before the first book. Sure, came out. So, sure, so sure. So the sure. writing process has been more <laughs> extended than just the past four years. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's very fair. Um what is your process like, though? Like, I mean, you talked a little bit about how you start with whatever really sparks you. You want something that's going to engage you for the time that you're writing it. How much are you plotting out your novels before you start writing? You know, it it has really varied on the depending on the book. Mm. I am very much an outliner. I need to have mm. some sort of an outline there um, before I start writing. But some of the books I've had, like, very detailed outlines. And then some... it it's a lot more vague. Like I kind of know at least the first like handful of scenes at the beginning and then like some stuff in the middle and then some stuff Mm -hmm. at the end. It's just sort of a feeling like, okay, I know enough to start writing now. And then as I'm writing, I'm kind of filling in blanks in my outline as I go. Um, There is a lot of, my first drafts are always a lot of like writing scenes that I know won't be in there or figure out shortly afterwards are not going to be in there in the book as I'm trying to figure out like exactly what is this person's story who is this character what do they go through Mm -hmm. you know for a while I would kind of beat myself up about it and now I kind of know it's just what I need to do in a first part of the process yeah yeah that's cool so is there a difference for you you know you've written a couple books that are like they're in a series. They're part of the same world. Characters can be kind of tangentially related to each other. You've also written standalone books. Do you have a preference? I have enjoyed the process of each of the books that I've written. I think there's things that I like about writing books with characters that I already know, um, because there is kind of a starting point for me. It's usually a character that I know and like I'm excited to dive back into their world again. But then there's also something fun about it being like brand new and different. And and I don't have to stick to anything I said in a previous book, right? <laughs> because there are definitely times in, um, in earlier books where I was like, oh, wait, th- this specific thing has to happen at this time because I mm. said in the last book. Because I painted now. myself um, in this corner. So, so I don't have to like consult calendars <laughs> of right. writing something brand new. Oh, that's funny. So we recently interviewed Gabrielle Zevin for her book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And she said this really interesting thing. She's written, I think, like 10-ish books at this point and talked about how uh, she has just written instead of going to therapy (laughs) (laughs) to a variety of results, which I just thought it was a very funny way of looking at it. Um, But I don't know. I feel like it made me wonder for you, as someone who's writing these books that come from such a intense, emotionally aware and vulnerable place if there's something that you found that you've learned about yourself over the course of writing? Oh, so much. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I, you know, I think um, sometimes it, sometimes it is really important for me to kind of, when I'm writing um, things in books where there's deep emotion to use whatever emotion that I have that's relevant to that, which I think mm. was really hard for me at first. Um, mm. It felt far too personal to put um, so much of myself into a book, but then, you know, but then I was like, well, but if you want this book to be good, 
Yeah. That's what, that's what you have to do. And so I think Mm -hmm. I kind of learned to give the more of myself I give to a book, um, the, the better it is, the more proud I am of it. Hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes total sense. And it's kind of beautiful. Thank you. I mean, I think even when it's not like, even when it's not something I specifically have dealt with, I often have that same emotion from somewhere. Right. And so I think digging into those feelings, um, is always good for a book. Mm -hmm, Totally. So I'm, from my perspective, it really seems like you were almost at the forefront of like a real shift in romance and, and it's popularity when the wedding date came out. And I don't know if maybe that's just because, as I said, you were my gateway drug, but it just felt like things were shifting. The market was taking romance readers more seriously. I, I don't know. It just made me wonder, you know, what it was like to to write a book that was just such a success right out the gate. I think exactly what you said, that the market is taking romance readers more seriously, right? Like mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. you know, in the years before the wedding date came out, I would go into bookstores And if they had romance at all, which many of them did not, um, Mm. it was like in a, you know, a little shelf in the back somewhere. There was never Mm. romance on a front table. Um, You know, libraries didn't have a lot of it. And and now every bookstore that I go into has romance, like right there in the front tables because they they know that like, because readers have been clamoring for this and it is, you know, I I certainly do not think that I can take uh, the credit for you know for romance being everywhere now but I am thrilled about it um and I think it is only getting more readers into romance and more writers like who are Mm. seeing that their work can be taken seriously publishers are paying a lot more attention um to romance writers and I hope that you know some of it has really worked for romance writers of color specifically and I hope that that continues um I think publishers have in the past um, kind of siloed a lot of romance writers of color. And um, so I really hope that, that they keep putting um, especially new and upcoming writers at those front tables. And so I've really been delighted about the changes and I really hope that it just continues. Yes. It's amazing. I'm curious what else you think is kind of like next for romance as a genre that you're excited about. You know, I'm just, I think publishing in general and romance especially is very unexpected. Mm. Um, And obviously there was a lot of terrible things that came out of the pandemic, but I can't wait to see what what kind of art it produced, you know? Um, And I think there's a delay there, right? Because a lot of people, I certainly don't want to act like so many people were just like writing the whole time in 2020. Of course. A lot of people were frozen, but I think that has changed you know, the experience of the past two and a half years have changed so many of us. And so Mm -hmm. I think there will be so much to explore about relationships, friendships, family, um, falling in love, you know, of like whatever kind that is and whatever kind of relationship those are. Like, I am excited to read it. That's super exciting. Well, Jasmine, thank you so much for talking with me. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All 
right. Thank you so much for listening. Always glad to have you along with us. Don't forget our book club conversation about Gabrielle Zevin's book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, is coming up. We would love to hear what you think of the book. Send us your thoughts before we tape the conversation next Friday. You can do that by recording yourself on your little smartphone, and then you can email the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Maggie Civet builds our newsletter every week. You can sign up for that if you go to wbez.org slash nerdetteaf. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman, and our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you next week. Speaking of words that were added to the dictionary, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to MacGyver, which was also added to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Oh, yes! Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.